If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll show us from this passage of Scripture the truthfulness of this fact that they hate us because they ultimately hate Christ and you. But may we, Lord, not be discouraged by this. May we be forewarned, but also prepared to deal with this matter and to deal with it correctly. Grant us, Lord, the discernment we need, wisdom we need, and the power we need to carry out your word accordingly. And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Our passage is in verses 24 to 25. They hated me without a cause. We have already covered verses 18 to 23 in previous messages. And what have we learned so far in 18 to 23? If the world hates us, we must realize they first hate Christ and the Father. Because they hate Christ and His Father, therefore they will hate us. They will show their hatred of Christ, the Son of God, and also God the Father, by hating the people of God, the church of God, the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are His eyes, His hands, His feet. And therefore they will persecute us when actually their ultimate hatred is against Christ and his Father. This is what he's been saying and teaching in verses 18 to 23. He continues to teach that in our passage, 24 to 25, especially when he says in verse 24, they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. They will hate us, hate Christ, and hate the Father. Well, now in verse 24, we draw our attention to this curious statement he makes. The curious statement in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. What does Christ mean when he says that they would not have sinned if he had not done the works among them? Which is also something he says in 22. We saw it briefly in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Why does he say this, make this statement, that they would not have sinned? Well, the basis of their guilt is in this first part of verse 24. First, let's deal with the basis of their guilt and then their guilt, their sin. 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. What are these works that Jesus did among them that makes them accountable for their sins? And actually, we're going to learn it makes them more accountable for their sins. First, what are the works that Jesus performed among them? He means the miraculous works. The miracles, the healings, the supernatural feats that he accomplished among them. We see in John 5, John 5, 
36 to 38. John 5, 36 to 38. This passage is in the aftermath of Christ healing a man who had been lame or sick for 38 years. And he performed this healing on the Sabbath day, which incensed the Jews. It infuriated the Jews that Jesus would do it on the Sabbath day, when actually they should be happy about it since it's a picture of eternal health and soundness and happiness. It's a picture of it that he performed it, that miracle on the Sabbath. But they didn't like it. They didn't like that kind of miracle. Now Jesus defends himself, and he does so in this part in verse 36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. He calls his miracle, his most recent miracle, a part of the works, verse 36, the works which the Father gave Christ to accomplish. These are the miracles of the Father, and the very miracles of the Father bear witness of Christ, testify of Christ that Christ came to or came to the world from the Father, sent from heaven to the world from the Father. How in the world would Satan produce such a wonderful miracle? A man who had been depressed and oppressed by his lameness and sickness for 38 years. Satan isn't about life and happiness. He's about death and misery. Why would they ascribe that miracle to the devil and not to God the Father through his Son? That's why he's saying in 36, they bear witness of me. This is proof of who I am. And 37, the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. If you deny the goodness of this miracle, these works of God, the Father, you are denying God because God is testifying of who I am. And you people who deny me, you not only deny me, you don't believe in him whom he sent. You don't believe in Christ, therefore you don't believe in the Father because the Father sent the Christ to perform these miracles as proof of his identity and ministry. Now chapter 10, where we read similar words. John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, this also is after a wonderful miracle, the miracle of John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Christ healed a man, a grown man who was blind from birth. That's in John chapter 9. He healed that man. That's the kind of miracle that is an astounding miracle. So, in the aftermath of that miracle, he's preaching and defending himself to his enemies. And his enemies, by this point, they want to put him to death. Verse 31, John 10, 31 to 39. They want to put him to death. John 10, 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. The Lord, he performed this miracle and he identifies who he is in light of the miracle. They hate his identity and they even hate the miracle. And therefore he he explains himself that he showed, verse 32, many good works from the Father. Many good works. At this point they say, well, it's not because you performed miracles, but because of who you say you are because of the miracles. Now, he, they understand that he is claiming to be God. Son of God means God, meaning having a divine nature. Not that he's God the Father, but Son of God means he has the nature of God, a divine nature. They understood that clearly. Verse 33, they accuse him of blasphemy because the miracle proves he's the Son of God, but they don't want to identify Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God. So they hate that claim. They hate that assertion that Jesus says that he is the Son of God, such as verse 36. Why do you say you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You shouldn't. In fact, you should let, you should let the supernatural nature of these miracles testify to who I really am. You should let that happen. Verse 37, 37 to 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Believe the works. How can you not let such a good thing cause you to believe in me? Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Okay? So, these are the works that Jesus performed. He performed many good works. Things that they had not ever experienced before, that they had not ever seen before, especially in the case of Lazarus, a man who had been dead for four days, Yes, Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead, but not the way Jesus did. And Jesus did so based on his own authority. Elijah and Elisha did based on the authority of the Lord. But the Lord did it based on his own authority. So the nature of Jesus' miracles were more extreme or more intense, more supernatural, but also he did it based on his own authority. And therefore, he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. Okay, we have established the fact that he performed miracles that were astounding miracles that others did not perform. And they had ample testimony. They had ample evidence presented before them. But now why does he say, they would not have sinned. What does he mean? Does Christ mean that they would have been sinless people, innocent people? Does he mean that there would be no sin whatsoever in their life if he had not performed all these good miracles? Is that what he's talking about here? No. He's talking about it comparatively speaking. He's talking about it in relation to what he just said. He's talking about it if we take what he did with their response to what he did. So this assumes, this comparison assumes that if we don't have revelation or if we don't have the word or if we don't have the law or if we don't have a miracle performed, If we don't have that, then 
There is no sin in relation to what we just said. There is no sin in relation to the miracle, and there is no sin in relation to the law, or no sin in relation to the word. Let's first show that this is the case throughout Scripture. And then we'll also come to this fact related to the miracles. That generally speaking, if we don't have a law, then we don't have a sin. Okay? The first example is in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve. If Adam and Eve had not received this word, would they have sinned? And the answer is no. And what is the word? Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. God issues this commandment to the man, so we have to ask, If the Lord had not delivered this commandment to the man, to Adam, was it a sin for him to eat? No. There is no sin until he transgresses this commandment. Correct? Once the commandment is issued, it's proclaimed, and the man knows it, and then if he transgresses it, then it becomes a sin in relation to the revealed word, or the revealed law, the revealed commandment. It becomes a sin in relation to that. And we do know that they knew this, or some of it, even imperfectly so, because of chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. This dialogue between the serpent, Satan, and the woman, Eve, takes place in 3, 1 to 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. From this exchange, this dialogue between the serpent, and the woman, we gather that she knew something of this commandment in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. She knew something of it. And whatever she knew, she disobeyed. Correct? So her disobedience is in relation to what she knew, whether she knew it perfectly or imperfectly, she still disobeyed the core of that word, the core of that law. She still disobeyed its essential part of it by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's go to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 3. The book of Romans, chapter 3. We're comparing... That which is revealed to whether it's a sin. It only becomes a sin once it's revealed or known to us. So now, Romans 3, 19 and 20. 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How do we know about our sin? How do we correctly know, definitively know, clearly know about our sin? The knowledge of our sin is revealed to us through the law. But if there is no law, 
Is there a violation of that law? Implied, no. But it's explicitly said in chapter 4. Romans 4, Romans 4, 14 to 15. Romans 4, 14 to 15. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. If there is no law, then there is no violation. But when the law is proclaimed, when the law is revealed, and then one transgresses that law, one is guilty of violating the law that was revealed to him. Where there is no law, there is no violation. But if there is a law and there's transgression of it, then there is a violation. Correct? Likely, uh, likewise, in chapter 5, Romans 5, verse 20. We'll read 20 to 21. Romans 5, 20 to 21. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 20, the law came in that the transgression might increase. The transgression increases when laws come in that explain the many ways in which one could transgress those laws. The laws come so that transgressions might rise to the surface. There's the comparison. Another place, Romans 7. Romans 7, 7 to 13. Romans 7, 7 to 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. This is the objector, the antagonist. The apostle anticipates this objection. That people will say, well, if my sin and guilt, my transgression, relates to the law, the revealed law, which is made known to me, if that is the reason for my judgment, for my condemnation, then the law must be an evil thing. It must be a sinful thing. It must be something deficient. And the answer of the apostle is, may it never be on the contrary. People who think that way misunderstand what is the purpose of the revealed law, the revealed word. Its purpose is to reveal our sin for a good purpose. 
The purpose is to reveal our sin for a good purpose in us. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law helps us understand sin, which is good. To understand sin is a good thing. Just like he illustrates, for I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Then where is the blame? Where is the blame? If the blame is not to be on the revealed word, the revealed law, because it produces knowledge of sin, awareness of our sin, where is the blame? Verses 8 to 13 It's not on the law because that is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 12. The blame is the sin within us that takes opportunity to kill us. Sin in us takes opportunity to kill us based on its rejection, based on its hatred, based on its despising of what it hears. When it hears, you shall not covet, sin in us says, I hate that. I want to covet. I love to covet. It makes me happy to covet. I I am satisfied when I covet. I receive pleasure when I covet. So I covet, and I don't like that law. So it's sin in us. The problem isn't the law. It's the sin in us. So before the law said, you shall not covet, then he says, Our sin was dormant. Our sin was inactive. Our sin was passive. As he says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. So the sin was inactive. He calls it being alive. Being alive in reference or compared to hearing that revealed law. Our sin or our nature is alive in relation to the commandment. But once the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Sin killed me, not the law. The law revealed it, but the sin accomplished it. Okay? So this is what he's saying about the relationship in John 15 when he says, the works which no one else did you would not have sin in this way. But let's also see this. This is true in reference to his miracles. Not just the word or the law, but in reference to the miracles themselves. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 20 to 24. Matthew 11, 20 to 24. 11:20. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Here we see that on the day of judgment, these foreign cities that did not experience the miracles of Christ, these foreign cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, foreign cities where the miracles of Christ were not performed, on the day of judgment, their judgment will be more tolerable than the judgment where Jesus performed his miracles, than the cities where Jesus performed his miracles. Verse 21, Chorazin, Bethsaida. Verse 23, Capernaum. 
Jesus walked in these cities and he performed miracles in these cities, yet they wouldn't repent. Because Jesus performed miracles there, because it says there in verse 20, in which most of his miracles were done. Most miracles were done there. They did not repent. So the day of judgment will be more severe on them than on the three foreign cities. The three local cities will have a more intense day of judgment than the others. And why? Because they experienced, they saw, they heard these miracles. They could even ask the recipients of the miracles about what all happened so that they might believe. But most of them in these cities refused to believe based on the witnesses, based on the recipients, the beneficiaries of the miracles. So their punishment is worse. Their punishment is worse in relation to what they see. They claim to see, but they don't really see. They claim to know, but they don't really know. In fact, their judgment becomes worse. Also, John chapter 9, in relation to miracles. Another example in John chapter 9. John 9 is the miracle of the blind man. He was blind from birth, healed as an adult, and then... Jesus says the following, John chapter 9, 39, 39 to 41. John 9, 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Here too we have a comparison between the literally blind man who now sees physically But more importantly, the blind man now sees spiritually. He was physically blind and spiritually blind, but now he physically sees and spiritually sees. Correct? The Pharisees, they saw physically, they still see physically, but they never saw spiritually and they still don't see spiritually even when a miracle happens before their very eyes. And they can even ask the beneficiary, the blind man, now seeing man, they could ask him. They could ask his parents and they could believe on the testimony of three witnesses, both the man and the parents. They could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and thereby have life in his name. But Jesus came into the world to heap more judgment on those who think they see spiritually when actually they don't see. And a part of heaping this judgment is for them to become more blind. There are degrees of blindness, correct? So they are blind already spiritually, but when Jesus performs miracles among them, They become even more blind spiritually. That's why he says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. That was the the one man. And that those who see may become blind. Those who see meaning those who say they see. Those who think they see. Those who have a deceptive deceptive vision because he says in 41 when they say we're not blind are we verse 41 Jesus said to them to the Pharisees if you were blind you would have no sin 
That's an allusion back to the previous statement. If the spiritually and literally blind man were blind and then he saw, then there is no sin there because the sin is forgiven. But in the case of the Pharisees, but since you say, since you claim, since you think, since you believe about yourself that we see, we see spiritually, we know, you don't know, the Pharisees say that, since they say they see, their sin remains. There's no forgiveness. Their sin remains and they become more blind. More blind and lost in trespasses and sins. That's the way they are. This is a comparative study of the nature of sin. The more that's revealed, then the more that is held accountable to the one who has received more revelation. Okay, having said that, explain that. Let's see also that there's another concept we must understand that those who have this greater revelation have greater condemnation if they don't repent and believe. The greater the revelation, the greater the condemnation. We saw a part of that in Matthew eleven twenty to 24, correct? Let's see that further. Further, that there are degrees of sin and evil. All sin and evil are detestable and worthy of God's judgment, but there are degrees of this, this before the Lord. The first is in Luke 11, Luke 11, 24 to 26. Luke 11, 24. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. An evil spirit, an unclean spirit, these are synonymous terms in the scripture. Evil spirit, unclean spirit, or a demon, a fallen angel. When it possesses a man, it causes torment and trouble for that man. The man's flesh, along with the evil desires of the evil spirit, they work together to produce sin and misery in the life of the man when there's one spirit. But sometimes that one spirit goes out of a man, verse 24. And when it goes out of a man temporarily, it decides, I will return to my house from which I came. The man is like a house. When it leaves, it's swept, put in order. It has relief. It's not dirty and filthy. It's not unclean, the inside of the house. Verse 25, when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. However, when that one evil spirit, unclean spirit, wants to go back to the man who now is sound and sane, thinking normally because he's clean temporarily, what happens to him? The one unclean spirit takes along, verse 26, seven other spirits more evil more evil than itself. So if it's, these others are more evil than the one spirit, what happens to the man? It says, they go in and live there, and the last state of that man is worse, or becomes worse than the first. We might compare it to murder. 
Let's say the one evil spirit, the one unclean spirit, is a spirit of unreasonable, unjustifiable, wicked anger or wrath. And it causes the man to be angry unnecessarily and prematurely. That is bad. That is a sin. That's not good. But supposing that evil spirit, the wrathful spirit, leaves the man, and then the man is calm and cool. He's collected for a time, a short time. So his house is cleaned up. He's patient and kind, gentle. He's not quick to wrath. But what if that wrathful spirit, the one wrathful spirit, finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and the last state of that man is worse than the first? What if the seven other spirits more evil are actually murderous spirits who use the wrath of the man to murder, actually kill innocent people, murder innocent people? What if that happens? Isn't that worse? Is, aren't those situations, aren't those events worse than the wrath? Yes, everybody understands that. It's not good to murder anybody. It's not good to murder an innocent human being, correct? So that would be more evil. This is a comparative use of the word evil or sin. Let's see the same in John 19. John chapter 19. John 19, 11. John 19, 11. We read, let's begin reading at verse 10. 10 and 11. 19, 10. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He who delivered me up to you had, has the greater sin. A greater sin? Why is there a greater sin in reference to Christ? Because Pilate, he was a Roman. He was a pagan, idolater. He was not an expert of the Jewish faith. He did not know the Old Testament, not like the Jews, not like the chief priests, not like Caiaphas, not like Judas Iscariot, correct? Not even like the common Jewish people. Pilate did not know the Bible like them, correct? So when they deliver Christ up to Pilate and Pilate says, okay, I'll, I'll go along with your whims and wishes. I'll deliver him over for a crucifixion because I want peace. Because I don't want my superiors to think I don't have control of my region of the world, of the, of the Roman Empire. I want peace. And the way to get peace is to make sure the majority of you people are happy. So the majority of you want Jesus on the cross. I'll put him on the cross. Okay. Is Pilate sinning? Yes. Jesus didn't say he's not sinning. He's saying those people who have more knowledge, who understand more about what I've done, they understand more of the scriptures and the word of God. They have the greater sin. Greater knowledge, when disobeyed, becomes a greater sin. Greater knowledge, greater sin. This is also the way... James says in James 3, verse 1, Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall inherit or we shall receive a stricter judgment. We shall receive a stricter judgment. It's stricter in the sight of God, because the teacher should know better than the pupil 
And if the teacher doesn't know better and do better, God's going to be more strict or more severe with the teacher than with the pupil, the, the, the disciple. And again, one more place is Luke 20, Luke 20, 45 to 47. Luke 20, 45 to 47. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and, for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. Greater condemnation because of greater sin. Why greater sin? Because they are the teachers of the people. The scribes, they are transmitting, they're writing the very words of God, and they are very astute, knowledgeable students of what they transcribe when they make copies and copies and copies of the Word of God, correct? The scribes, and the scribes were a segment of the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, they were a part of them. So these are those who know and those who teach the people. They are experts. These are the ones who exploit the common people, such as the widows here. They exploit, they take advantage of the common people, and they put on a show of religion, a public show of religion. They, he says, will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation because of greater knowledge. And this applies generally. It's not only of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not only of the teachers. But it applies generally to all of us. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 26 says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Verse 29, how much severer punishment there we have a comparison. A severer punishment one receives who tramples underfoot the Son of God, regards as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Right? That applies to all of us. Whoever comes to the knowledge of the truth or receives the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 2, 2.20-22. 2 Peter 2.20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. 
It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. There, there are these people in chapter 2, verse 20 of Peter. These people have had this knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They come to this knowledge, and for a while, a short time, temporarily, they escape the defilements of the world. They escape from their previous sins for a time, for a short time. The last state becomes worse for them than the first if they go back to their old ways. If they go back to their old ways, to their old sins, indulging in them, making excuses for them, and at the same time saying, everything is fine. Or even if they don't say everything is fine. Whenever they go back to their old sins. He tells us in verse 21, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It's better for them to be ignorant than to be knowledgeable and turn away from the knowledge. Better to be ignorant. Not that it's going to be heaven for them on the day of judgment. He doesn't mean that at all. He means that there is less punishment on the day of judgment. It's eternal and it's in hell, the lake of fire, but it's a lesser judgment than it is for those who have the knowledge and turn away from that knowledge. And they are compared to dogs and hogs in verse 22, who return to their filth, the filth of their sins. This is the same, or this is what he means in terms of they would have, they would not have sin. Sin would not be there. But we also have to ask about sin. What is sin? What is sin? We have to define this because in relation to God's word or God's works, the miracles of God and the message of God, people will say they're not sinning. They are apt to saying it's not a sin. What do they say? They say, you can't judge me. You think you're perfect. It's a part of my upbringing. It's my personality. You don't know my heart. So on and so forth, right? They speak like this. That's what they say. It's not a sin. So we have to explain what is sin. Biblically defined, does the Bible give us a definition of sin? Yes. In fact, it gives us a few definitions of sin. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 verse 4. 1 John 3 verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what law are we talking about? If sin is lawlessness, which law are we talking about? If we remember the other verses we already read, Romans 3, 19 and 20, Romans 4, 14 and 15, Romans 5, 20 to 21, and Romans 7, 7 to 13, that law is the word of God in the Old Testament and specifically as contained in the Ten Commandments. If we transgress, then we are lawless because we break God's law, correct? Okay, so that is the law. He confirms this to us in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 and 
we read in verse 3. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. The love of God is to keep His commandments, and they are not a burden. Now, verse 17. 1 John 5, 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. All unrighteousness is sin. If we don't keep His commandments, wouldn't that be unrighteous? Wouldn't that be wicked? Like He said in chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. So now He says, all unrighteousness is sin. Not keeping His commandments is lawlessness and sin. Also, we turn to James, James chapter 4, James chapter 4, in reference to our knowledge, James chapter 4, verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. If the word is revealed to us, the law is revealed to us, and we don't do it, we know what's right, we know what's wrong, then if we don't do the right thing, then our transgression becomes a sin to us. That's based on true knowledge of God's word or God's law, God's commandment. If we don't do it, then it is a sin. Another place we find in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, 23. Romans 14, 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. In this chapter, the apostle has primarily been dealing with food and drink. And if we don't understand food and drink according to God's word, and we have doubts, we are condemned, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. If we don't understand food and drink the way God does in this chapter, things that we would typically consider minor issues, if we don't understand them correctly and we have doubts, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Faith in what God says, right? Faith in his word. If something so small a matter as food and drink if not partaken from faith, then it's a sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. If these small matters need faith for them not to be sin to us, how much more the greater matters of Scripture? The greater matters should be based on faith. This also proves that anything we do before our conversion, before we have true faith, is considered a sin before God, even if it is producing civil goodness, civil righteousness. That is, we are diligent um, spouses, we are diligent parents, we are upstanding citizens of the country. Even when we do those things, though they are good in what they do to benefit the individuals involved, in reference to God and salvation, they are considered sin because they're not based on faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Only those actions of the convert after conversion in faith are acceptable to God. 
which means even after our conversion, if we act in a way that does not have as its basis faith, then it's sin, even after our conversion. And also Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 verses, we'll read first verse 1 and then we'll go to verse 6. Verse 1, what is faith therefore? If whatever is not from faith is sin, then we have to have an understanding of what true faith is. Otherwise, if we don't have a proper understanding of true faith, then it's sin. Right? Verse 1, Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If our faith is not equated with, does not have as its company assurance and conviction, if faith is devoid of assurance, if faith is devoid, empty of conviction, then it's not faith. People might call it faith, but it's not true faith. And if it's not true faith, then it's sin. Correct? So faith must accompany assurance, or assurance must be a part of true faith. And conviction must also be a part of it. Also, it's things hoped for, things not seen. This has to do with the unseen, invisible, spiritual world. That's the way faith must be. Faith in what is to come. Faith in things that the Bible promises to us, holds out hope to us in Christ. It has to be based on that. If it's not based on that, and it's only based on the physical world, then it's not faith. It's a false faith. If it's only based on the physical world, tangible, seen world. It has to be on the unseen world, where the hope is. Also, verse 6. How important is this faith to have? Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If we don't have true faith, we have sin. And if we have sin, it's impossible to please God. If we have true faith, then we can please Him. And how does that true faith show itself, manifest itself? He who comes to God must believe that He is. Must believe in the existence of God. And not any God, the true God of the Bible, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It must believe in what he says about himself and the way of salvation. God must believe in him. And not only believe in him, that God is a rewarder. God is one who gives his people the graces or the gifts of grace. He grants to us these promises, these good things, to those who diligently seek Him. We diligently seek Him. We believe that He is in the way the Bible teaches us. This is how we know we have true faith. And if these are absent, then we don't have true faith. Well, what do we have? We have sin. We have a false faith which equates to sin. So then, we should have true faith. Faith and not make excuses for not having true faith. Or when we don't properly respond to what God has revealed, we cannot say it's not a sin. We have to call it a sin. And actually, these days, the only thing that is a sin is to call a sinner a sinner. That's the way people look at sin that the one who accuses another of sin is the only sinner. Otherwise, don't call the actions, the thoughts, the beliefs of the others a sin. 
Sometimes people will say that openly, something like that openly, and many times it shows in their beliefs and behavior because they will never call an evil deed, an evil thought, an evil word, sin. They'll call it a personality uh, trait. They'll call it something else. And they'll blame us for not being gracious to them. When actually this is what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us that it is sin. Rejecting anything God says is sin. And when they do so, when people do so, verse 24, they hate me and my father as well. We saw last time and in previous studies that it is inescapable. They cannot claim to belong to God. They cannot claim to know God when they despise the people of God, when they perpetrate sins against the people of God. When they do that, they hate Christ and they hate the Father of Christ. This is inescapable. This is what he said in verse 18 and 23. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. John 8, 42 Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. If God were your father, you would love me. Since God is not their father, therefore they hate him and hate his people, hate his body, his bride, the church, the people of God. They hate God, and they display it by hating the people of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.